Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, Wealth Strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. We've seen a massive and rapid expansion of sports betting. Ten years ago, if you'd asked me, what are the trends going to be? And we, at that time, were thinking, oh, it's all going to be online poker. No one predicted what we have here today. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Today, we're going to start in an unexpected place for a show about money with the Kansas City Chiefs. It is over, and the Kansas City Chiefs have won it, heading to the Super Bowl. That's the sound of Kansas City clinching their spot in the Super Bowl. They'll play the Philadelphia Eagles on February 12th. Stephanie, will you be watching? Are you a football fan? I sure will. I did live in Kansas City for 17 years. Well, you won't be alone. Last year, roughly 208 million people tuned into football's biggest night. That kind of viewership can translate into a lot of money. From the famous ads and the tourism dollars that get spent in the game's host city, to the millions it costs to put on the halftime show. And there's one more important money angle on the big game. The Super Bowl is one of the single biggest days for sports betting in the United States every year. And increasingly, that type of gambling is becoming easier and easier to do. Up until just a few years ago, sports betting was illegal in most states. This week, we're taking a look at how it went from an illicit activity to a multi-billion dollar legalized industry in just five years. To unpack all that, we have to go back to the 90s. In 1992, a federal law called the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act also known as PASPA or the Bradley Act, essentially made sports betting illegal in the United States. Existing sports betting operations in Oregon, Delaware, and Montana were allowed to continue. And Nevada, the mecca of gambling, was also allowed to maintain its licensed sports gambling. But in the rest of the U.S., you couldn't bet on sports, legally at least. And with leagues like the NFL and NBA decisively against it, Sports betting faced an uphill battle. It's kind of like one of these vices like drugs or smoking or things of that nature that the leagues didn't really want to be associated with. That's Weston Blasey, a reporter at MarketWatch. As time grew and there was more interest by particularly one state, New Jersey, they pushed for the legalization of sports betting really before anybody And at the time, Governor Chris Christie was sort of spearheading that. The case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and in 2018, they issued a ruling. There was a game-changing development in America's sports industry today. America's highest court has given the go-ahead to bet on sports across the country. Some experts say such a move could see 32 states offering sports betting within five years. A number of stocks... So the states had the chance to up the ante on sports betting, and many of them went all in on the opportunity. 
According to a tracker by the American Gaming Association, sports betting is now legal and live in 33 states, plus Washington, D.C. It's legal but not yet up and running in three more, and there's active legislation or planned ballot initiatives in eight more states. That leaves just six states that haven't yet moved to legalize sports betting. So every state's a little bit different in terms of what it takes to get to legalization. That's Casey Clark. He's the senior vice president at the American Gaming Association, a national trade group that represents the U.S. casino industry. He walked us through the legalization process. Some states require constitutional amendments that require ballot initiatives that get voted on by the public during election years. Some are strictly regulatory in that their current gambling laws would allow for an expansion, and some require new laws or legislations to be passed. Once it's legalized, it can take anywhere from a few months to a year for sports wagering to become operational, according to Clark. That said, sports betting is moving quickly. It's been just five years since the Supreme Court overturned PASPA, but the majority of American adults now have access to sports betting in their state. 65% of American adults now live in a market where sports betting is legal. But even further than that, I think it's important to contextually realize that Americans were betting on sports before the Supreme Court's decision. They just only had one vehicle where they could do that, and that was the illegal market. And so what we're seeing is massive migration of American sports bettors taking their action from illegal operators into the protections of the legal market, and that's really encouraging. Clark says before the PASPA decision, the AGA estimated that around $150 billion a year was being bet on sports illegally. Now, he says, it's fallen to about $60 billion. But that's not the only shift taking place. Americans are also moving from in-person gambling to online. Mobile betting is a bit less widespread, but it's growing fast. Right now, it's operational in 23 states and Washington, D.C. So as you might expect, mobile betting is a lot more popular than in-person betting. MarketWatch's Weston Blasey explained the difference. In-person betting, where you might go up to a kiosk, a lot of these are digitized. Sometimes it's actually a person that's taking betting tickets where you say, hey, I would like to bet the Cleveland Browns today. And they give you a real physical ticket, real old school style. And you can have that ticket. And if they win, you come back and you cash it and you get your money. Now, that sounds all nice and good, but it's kind of a pain to go out to a casino or go out to a sports book that's close by that offers those bets. The ease of which people can bet on mobile is pretty astounding. It's basically only a login information like you would log into you know, your Twitter or your Instagram. And as soon as you have that, boom, you have access to thousands of bets, whether that's whatever sports betting company that you use, you have access to thousands of bets basically at your fingertips. And unsurprisingly, that has become the avenue where most people submit their bets. And when we say most people, exactly how many people are we talking about? Now, this changes state by state because not every state that offers betting also offers mobile betting. But for the states that do offer both, it's estimated that about 90% of all sports bets are placed on mobile. You can imagine, 
all of that translates into a lot of money. Here's Casey Clark again. Everything lags a little bit in this business in terms of reporting. If you're looking for full year revenue numbers, you're looking at 2021. And there was more than $57 billion bet legally in America in 2021, you know, generated over half a billion dollars in state tax revenue across 31 markets. We've far exceeded that already. If you look at where we are through November of 22, $83 billion was bet through November in 2022, generating $1.3 billion in state tax revenue. So those numbers escalate pretty quickly when you add additional markets to the fold. Clark mentions tax revenue, and that's a big piece of the story here. But there are also other fees that can bring in money for states. In New York, for example, sports betting operators pay a one-time licensing fee of $25 million. So what are states doing with all of that money? Some places allocate their sports betting money to an education fund. Some places dedicate that to infrastructure improvements or healthcare, emergency services. So gaming tax revenue in general goes to support significant services, public services like that. And in a lot of states, even beyond sports betting, the casino gambling industry is one of the highest taxpayers in every market that we're operating in. So this is an additive component to how we support the communities in which we operate. And we're excited about where we're headed. Weston Blasey says that sometimes tax revenue even becomes part of the conversation before betting is legalized in a state. Like California, for example, who attempted to legalize sports betting in the last election, they actually had a ballot measure where people could vote on, would you like sports gambling to be legal in our state? In the bill writing, they said, hey, whatever tax revenue we will get from sports betting, we're going to use it to address mental health issues and homelessness in our state. And that was literally written into the bill. So it wasn't sort of politician lip service or what have you. It was like really written in the bill. And they're getting a little bit creative, they being politicians, the sports betting companies of ways to get more states involved. But it really depends on what state you're in as to what they're going to do with the tax revenue. We'll talk more about what happened with that California ballot measure later in the show. For now, let's focus on understanding the current landscape of operators in the sports betting field. Who are the main players? We talk about in advertising that there's this sort of duopoly of these two giant conglomerates in Facebook and Google that do a lot of the advertising work, and then it's sort of everybody else. And that's very comparable to sports betting because there really is two main players in the United States, DraftKings and FanDuel. Both of those two combine for 60 to 75% of the total U.S. market share, which is pretty big. There are other companies in the sports betting arena as well, big names you might already associate with gambling, like Caesars, Fox, and Penn National, just to list a few. So why do DraftKings and FanDuel have such a big share of the market? I think part of it is because both of those companies have deep roots in fantasy sports. So they have a lot of brand recognition. They were operating prior to 2018 in the daily fantasy and fantasy sports realms. So people were using their apps. They were familiar with their names. So there's sort of that brand loyalty that people sort of already have. Now, it's interesting to compare that to maybe BetMGM or Caesars, two companies that also offer mobile sports betting. 
those companies have also been around for a while. I mean, you think of Las Vegas, the Vegas Strip, casinos, but that's sort of a different kind of brand association than you might think of sports betting. So they're sort of competing in these two different realms, even though now when sports betting was legalized, they're now competing for the same customers. So Stephanie, what's your take on all this? Have you ever placed a bet? I mean, we used to have Super Bowl parties at the house where we would, you know, all the neighbors would chip in and we'd place bets. But yeah, I guess I've, I've done it once using the online technology. And I have to say, they make it really easy. And, you know, if you're not going crazy, it can be a lot of fun. Okay, but there's something that concerns me. I mean, states say the taxes they collect from sports betting will go to support a variety of needs. But we know that hasn't always worked out as planned with state lottery revenue. I mean, in some cases, money earmarked for education didn't go directly to schools. In 2018, a New York assemblyman noted that a chunk of the billions the state collects from the lottery was, quote unquote, pinched off to pay for items like attorney's fees for construction projects and paving roads near schools. So the lottery stuff, it didn't quite always end up where people thought it would. Yeah, and that's a problem when the community buy-in really is in part about thinking that there's going to be something on the other side that benefits the community and it doesn't happen. That's a problem. Coming up, does more gambling mean more problems? We'll talk about some of the hurdles the sports betting industry still has to clear. I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back to the Best New Ideas in Money. Before the break, we took a look at the recent history of sports betting in the United States. Now legal and live in 33 states with more coming, it's a multi-billion dollar industry that's still growing. But with growth comes growing pains. In the first half of the episode, we talked about how tax revenue has been a big driver for states when it comes to the adoption of sports betting. The approaches states take will continue to shift as the now legal industry becomes more embedded in American life. But it's not the only open question about how betting might evolve. Ten years ago, if you'd asked me, what are the trends going to be in gambling addiction? We, at that time, were thinking, oh, it's all going to be online poker. And no one predicted what we have here today. That's Timothy Fong. He's a professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the co-director of the UCLA Gambling Studies Program. We've seen a massive and rapid expansion of sports betting, but it's not just legalizing sports betting. It's the combination of legalizing sports betting 
with really rapid advances in technology. And we're talking about mobile sports betting and new kinds of sports bets that were just invented in the last few years. The technology may be new, but gambling and the problems associated with it go way back. Rachel Volberg, a professor from the University of Massachusetts Amherst School of Public Health and Health Sciences, has been studying what we now call gambling disorder since 1985. We asked Volberg, has sports betting shifted the numbers when it comes to gambling disorder? Well, I can't really speak to the situation in the United States because in the U.S., gambling is considered a state-level issue. And there is actually no funding set aside at the federal level to monitor gambling behavior and problem gambling prevalence. We can say that there has been a relatively dramatic increase in the number of people contacting problem gambling helplines around the country. Fong has found the same in his research. We've seen more men and women come into treatment at younger ages with gambling problems and financial problems and a lot of the consequences of addiction. At UCLA Gambling Studies Program, we definitely have seen over the last two years more younger men presenting with sports betting. In our state of California, sports betting is the number four form of gambling that our clients are reporting, but we don't have legalized sports betting here. Casey Clark of the American Gaming Association says responsible gambling is at the forefront of the work both the organization and the operators do. As a reminder, the AGA is a trade group that represents the casino industry. We pay close attention to ensuring that any kind of gambling is treated as a form of entertainment for adults and that we're ensuring that people have the tools to understand how they can bet responsibly if they choose to do that, and access to the resources for treatment if they seem to have a problem. The shift to mobile betting has allowed operators to implement some tools that help customers track the amount of money and time they're spending on betting. Each app operates a little bit differently in terms of what the operators have built into their infrastructure. But yes, there are ways for them to intervene and remind you that you've been on for a long period of time or, or you've been betting more than you typically do. And not, not only is it intervention from the operator's side, there's also opportunities for self-limiting tools that exist. So you might say, I only want to be able to bet $100 this month. And those are things that are at your disposal as, as a sports better too. So there's ways that the operators are engaging proactively with consumers. And there are, there are tools that are available to equip consumers to, to do so effectively. But gambling researcher Volberg thinks about the term responsible gambling a bit differently. Well, I'm not a big fan of the term responsible gambling because I feel that that terminology really puts the onus on the individual consumer. And I think that because much of sports betting is online, there's actually a lot of information that the operators have about people's behavior that could be used to provide them with tools to gamble within their means and within the amount of time that they want to set aside for that. It shouldn't be that the individual consumer has to like search through web pages to find like, you know, the self-exclusion tool or something like that. It should be, and this is perhaps a role for regulators 
who should really be taking a very strong stance, in my opinion, and requiring as a condition of licensure that the operators demonstrate the effectiveness of the measures that they are required to implement to protect their customers. So it should be what they call it in Europe, I believe, is is a, a duty of care. Another issue for gambling addiction specialists is advertising. If you live in a state where sports betting is legal, you've probably seen some of those ads. According to research firm BIA Advisory Services, local ad spending for sports betting is expected to reach $2.9 billion next year. UCLA's Fong would like to see more oversight applied to the way sports betting is advertised. Gambling advertising does not have anywhere near the scrutiny or the regulation, say, tobacco or alcohol or cannabis. Think about the last time you saw a cannabis television ad on a major television network. You haven't because the federal law has banned that. I think these are the sort of subtle things that drive gambling behavior. And it doesn't mean that they're predatory. And I'm not saying that these should be banned, but we really need to be cautious and think about what messages are these sending to those who are really the most vulnerable to develop addictive disorders. Concerns about the public health impact may be the reason some states are still hesitant to go all the way with legalization. Remember that ballot measure in California we mentioned earlier? The one that would have allocated tax revenue to mental health services and homelessness in the state? The public actually voted against it. Here's Weston Blasey again. I mean, we just saw in California, maybe one of the most progressive states of all, their voters actually turned it down. And it's a little difficult to say as to why, because sports betting typically polls pretty decently, but I wonder if there is a overall vibe to the industry that some people are just not buying. Maybe they're comparing it to a sort of cannabis-like thing where maybe they like overall approve of it, but like when push comes to shove, they're just not ready to legalize it. But in the states where it is legal, this Sunday will be a big day for sports gambling operators. In fact, even if they lose money this weekend, the sports betting companies still might count it as a win. They're still in this sort of customer acquisition stage where they're okay with sort of giving out these, you know, free bets to customers to sort of just get them in the door. When I was speaking to the FanDuel CEO, Matthew King, who has since moved on from the company, he had said that he honestly doesn't even care if his company wins money on the Super Bowl from betting. He actually said he's okay if they lose money because the most important thing for him is that he, A, gives customers a great experience betting, but more importantly, just gets people sort of in the door and hopefully they will bet with them again. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Weston Blasey, Casey Clark, Timothy Fong, Rachel Volberg, and Steffi George. To learn more about new ideas in sports betting, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Meta Lutzhoff, and Katie Ferguson, who also mixed this episode. 
Melissa Haggerty is executive producer. Mark DeCambry was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the Market Watch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.